As we gather today to worship, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and find a Bible, uh, open it up on your electronic device, or uh, there's one in the, in the rack in front of you, or we'll also put it on the screen, and go ahead and find John chapter 5, if you would. We're going to be at the end of chapter 5. And as you're looking for that, I, I want to share with you a principle that the Bible, I believe, shows us uh, a truth about human nature and human character Uh, But even if you don't believe the Bible or you're not one who reads the Bible regularly, you know this principle is true because you've seen it in other people. And maybe you've even seen it in yourself, although maybe you wouldn't want to admit that. But here's the the principle. That way if you, you fall asleep or you leave early, you'll get the main point. And the principle is this. It's fairly simple. That we, what we want has a direct impact on what we choose to believe. What we want has a direct impact on what we choose to believe. Let me give you just a, a, a pretty simple example of this in my own life. When, when I was a little boy, probably not unlike most little boys, I was fascinated with magic, magicians, you know, and there was a period of time when there was a, a, a magician named David Copperfield. I'm quite sure that's a stage name, but David Copperfield, maybe you know who that is. He would have these specials on in the evening and he would make things disappear. So they would build the hype up for, for weeks and weeks and he was going to make the Statue of Liberty disappear. And so, uh, you know, I waited and I was going to stay up that night and watch that, that uh, the Statue of Liberty disappear. He made a jet disappear, all these great things that he made disappear. Well, what I wanted as a little boy was to believe that that was true, so I did. And then when I was older, uh, I had the opportunity to be involved in a production in a theater that actually had two theaters that, uh, that, were in this, that shared the same backstage area. Well, as, as, it would, as was the case, David Copperfield was performing in the other theater, and so I was backstage with him uh, for the run of these shows as they were going on simultaneously. And I come to find out, um, he walks everywhere. I mean, as a boy, I thought, well, if you're David Copperfield, you just zip and you're gone somewhere else. But I met him and my expectation of him, I was very disappointed in, in what I met because he didn't make anything disappear. I mean, backstage, I could see all the things that he was doing. The people that he put in the little box... Well, they were sitting backstage waiting for the show to end so they could go out and be with their family again. But what I I wanted affected what I was choosing to believe. And that's maybe not a big deal when it comes to a childhood fantasy about a magician, but it does become a big deal as we get older, doesn't it? Because it's the power of human wants that so often change human beliefs. So we want recognition. So we believe we have to perform more. Or we believe we have to put ourselves in positions where we're going to be noticed. We, we, we want money. And so we choose to believe that money will satisfy all of our needs. And that whatever we do to pursue money is okay if in the end maybe we're a little generous with it. We want control. And so we choose to believe that we have to insert ourselves in situations that maybe have nothing to do with us. There are all kinds of human desires that shape what we want. I mean, even even some of the most base desires we have have the greatest ability to change our beliefs. The, the, The desire for sex suddenly changes what we believe. 
That, that if this is the way we choose to live or what we choose to do, we begin to justify our behaviors to get what we want. And pretty soon we find ourselves changing our set of beliefs. And, and we, if we were to go back in time, we would say, as a younger person, well, I would never do that. But what happened? As our beliefs morphed to fit our wants and our desires... You see, there's a tension that exists. There's a contradiction. When a contradiction exists between what I want and what I believe, I will find a way to resolve that tension. That tension cannot exist long in the human spirit. You will either resolve it in one of two ways. You will either change your wants to fit what you believe, or you will change your beliefs to fit what you want. It happens all the time. We all do it all the time. And I want to look at a passage of scripture where Jesus is talking to some people and at the core of what he's saying is he's talking about what people want and how their belief is based on what it is they really, really desire. So if you found John chapter 5, let me just tell you what happens at the beginning of the story. Jesus has an encounter with a man who is somehow disabled. We don't really know details, but he's laying by a pool with many, many other disabled people. Jesus, for whatever reason, singles this man out for healing. And he goes to the man and he asks him a question, and it's a significant question. He says, what do you, he says, do you want to be well? And the man doesn't answer the question. Instead, he gives excuses why he's not already well. Well, Jesus kind of cuts to the chase and heals the man anyway. And he tells him to, to, to get up, pick up his mat, and walk. And the man does. He gets up and he picks up his mat. The problem is, it's the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, and carrying your mat on the Sabbath is breaking that law. So when the religious leaders see this man carrying his mat, they're upset. They ask him about it. And this guy says, well, I'm only doing it because the guy who healed me told me to do it. And so they're wanting to know who that is. He doesn't know. Eventually they find out it's Jesus. So then they begin, the religious leaders begin this conversation with Jesus where they're interrogating him, basically saying, who do you think you are? And Jesus pretty directly tells them who he is. That that he does what he, he says, I do what the Father is doing because the Father and I, we are one, which is a blasphemous statement. And if you're going to make that kind of statement, you better be able to substantiate what you're saying. So in the course of this conversation, Jesus is going to justify uh, his claim as the unique son of God. But in the course of doing it, he still comes back to this idea of what is it that these religious people want and why they choose to believe what they believe based on those wants. So so here's what he says in, in verse 30. He says, Jesus being questioned, I can do nothing on my own. Jesus is selfless in his desires. I can do nothing on my own. As I, as I hear, I judge. That's what God's called him to do. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will. In other words, it's not about what I want. I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That Jesus says, I am emptied. I want only what the Father wants, and what he wants and what he's given me is to be the judge. Now, in order to prove that he's the judge, the judge is actually 
the one who's being accused, that the judge is actually the one having to defend himself. And so he goes on in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. That's just basic Uh, basic law. You can't have someone make a claim about themselves and then be their own witness. Jesus says, okay, we're going to play by your rules. I recognize I can't be my own witness, so I'm going to give you four witnesses. And he goes through the witnesses. The first one is a human witness, and it's John the Baptist. He says this, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth not that the testimony that I receive from this man, uh, not that I, I'm sorry, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. In other words, I don't need John's testimony about myself. I know who I am. But John's testimony is to help you. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing, in other words, you wanted to rejoice for a while in his light. See, John the Baptist, according to most scholars, probably had drawn crowds of close to a quarter of a million people, which is a huge percentage of the population in Jerusalem at this time. Everybody was going out to see John. They were fascinated by John. There had not been a prophet in Israel in 400 years, and here comes this guy, and everybody recognizes this guy fits the mold of Elijah, of the great prophets of the Old Testament. They're all going out. They're fascinated. Even the religious leaders are coming out and hearing him, and Jesus is saying, there was a time when you wanted to believe what John was saying until John said what you didn't want to hear. Isn't that what we do? We're willing to receive people's counsel and advice as long as it's the counsel and advice we want. But the minute that counsel or advice runs counter to what we've already predetermined we want or our goal is, we dismiss that counsel. Jesus is saying that's exactly what you did with John. He gives a second witness, a divine witness, God. He says this in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing. He's talking about the signs, the miracles, the fact that he healed this man that they're so upset about. The fact that this guy had been lame for 37 years, unable to walk or carry anything and is standing there is part of the evidence, this this sign that God had given him the power to do it. They bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, for, for you have never seen him. So God, a divine witness. And then he gives a historic witness. He talks about the scriptures, verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. Now, this is so important for any of us who claim to believe and value what the Bible says. Because Jesus is talking to these religious people who not only read the scriptures every day, but they would have had it memorized, the entire Old Testament. Completely memorized. And Jesus is basically saying, you're reading it, But you don't understand anything that you're reading, which would have been very, very offensive to these people. But but he's letting them know that they're, listen, you guys are reading the right book, but you're reading it the wrong way. Eugene Peterson likens it to, uh, to taking a recipe for beef stew and trying to use it as clues to find a hidden treasure. 
And he says at the end of the day, if you're reading a recipe for beef stew and trying to find a hidden treasure, not only will you not have any more money, you'll still be hungry at the end of the day. Because you can read the right book, but read it in the wrong way. That's exactly what these folks were doing. There is nothing intrinsically, this, listen, because this, at first glance, this is going to sound offensive to those of you who value and study the scriptures. But I want you to stay with me because I believe this is true. Not just because I've experienced it, but because I think it's what Jesus is saying. There is nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the Bible if you fail to discern its true content and purpose. You can read it and study it and memorize it, but if you don't get to the purpose behind the scripture, if you don't receive the content as it's given, if you're always content to take it and twist it for your own purposes, it will always say what you want it to say. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying to these religious leaders. See, we read the Bible in one of two, for one of two reasons. To draw the Bible's meaning into our reality... In other words, here's my life, here are my set of problems, and here are my circumstances, and I, I, I need some sort of advice. And so I, what does the Bible say about that? And I go to the Bible to try to, bring, to try to bring some meaning to my circumstances. Or to be drawn into the biblical reality and there find our meaning. And that is a very different thing. See, there's a, there's a vast difference between trying to use the Bible in order to justify ourselves or meet our needs and going to the Bible and saying, how do I conform myself to the truth that is presented there regardless of what my selfish desires are? Because maybe my wants have to change according to the scriptures. Maybe there is a higher truth that should be dictating what I want and what I desire. You see, it matters the perspective of the reader. As you read the scripture, who's the center of the story? Who is the main character? Who's the hero? Who's the victim? Who's the villain? So many times, it's me as I'm reading it. But it's never me. Any of you remember getting a box of cereal and and there being a decoder key in the cereal? And you would hold the decoder key up to some secret message on the back of the cereal box and suddenly you could read. And it was always disappointing because it was basically always the same, eat more Lucky Charms. (laughs) Well, what Jesus is telling these Pharisees is you guys are reading the right book, but you're misinterpreting it because you don't have the decoder key. I am the decoder key. The life The death and the resurrection of Jesus is the lens through which we understand everything about the Scripture. Every manifestation of God in the Old Testament is a revelation of Jesus. And if, here's what he's telling them, if you know the God of the Old Testament, you would recognize Jesus as the Messiah in the New Testament. But if you fail to recognize Jesus as God in the New Testament, then you don't have a clue who the God of the Old Testament is. That the two go together. But, but here's, here's the real indictment. Why don't they see this? Why can't they understand this? Because their wants have affected their beliefs. Listen to what he says uh, 
Listen to what he says in, uh, in verse 40. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, when you read that, it, 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 it seems to be pretty straightforward. But when you, when you look at the, the, the Greek word and how it's translated here, the word that Jesus used when he spoke to the paralyzed man by the pool, when he asked him, do you want to be well? That's the same word that's used here. So a literal translation of this is this. Do you, not, uh, you do not want to come to me that you may receive eternal life. See, what Jesus is telling them is the reason you don't see it in the Old Testament, the reason you don't see it in the signs and miracles, the reason you don't see it in the testimony of John the Baptist is because you don't want to. You've got other things that you want. And listen to what he says in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not judging, I'm not judging you because of this. I will not accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You don't understand. Now listen to what Jesus is saying. Moses is going to accuse him. He said, you don't hear God. You've not seen God. You don't have the word of God abiding in you. You don't have the love of God in you. This is why they killed him. Because Jesus was pointing out the truth of their hearts. And they didn't like it. So if they didn't want to follow Jesus, what is it that they did want? He goes on and he says in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. That's really important. Jesus says, I I don't need it. I, I don't need people's praise. I don't need people's recognition. I don't need you to believe that I'm the son of God in order to be the son of God. Some of you need to hear that message that your identity is found in Christ alone And not in your work performance or what people think about you. But if your identity is centered in Jesus, other people's testimony about you is irrelevant. I do not receive the glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. See, they don't want Jesus to be the center. What they want is the glory for themselves. And it's the desire of every human heart, isn't it? To be known, to be recognized, to be appreciated, to be acknowledged. And what Jesus is saying is, As long as your desire is selfish, you will never be able to believe the truth about who I am. See, the Pharisees didn't want to believe because they loved the glory of man, not the glory of God. They don't want Jesus because they they themselves want human praise. They don't want Jesus because they want to be the center of the story. They don't want Jesus to be Lord because they want to be in control. They don't want Jesus to be exalted because they want to be exalted. 
And Jesus even says as proof of this, if another person came claiming to be the Messiah and he came in his own name, you'd believe him. Now remember, Jesus says, I didn't come in my own name. I came in the name of God who sent me. But if somebody came heralding their own worth, heralding their own value, you'd follow them. Do you know we still do that, don't we? We are attracted to people of power and position and fame and money. And we're drawn to them. Why are we drawn to people like that? Because it's what we want. It's what we want to be true about ourselves. And Jesus says, listen, if someone came proclaiming themselves as Messiah, you'd follow them in a minute. But the Son of Man comes serving and humbling himself. And that's the kind of Savior that gets crucified. And God knew that's exactly the kind of Savior we needed. One who was himself willing to set aside all of the honor that was due him in order that he could take on our brokenness and our sin to pay the penalty. But Jesus said, if another Savior came, if a Messiah were to come proclaiming themselves, you would follow them because you would see in them what justifies your own self-centeredness. You would see in them the thing you want the most. And so you would believe because what we want has the power to change what we believe. Faith, John Piper says, comes to Christ destitute of any claim to be glorious or to be praised. So the love of human praise is a great obstacle to faith and it must die. That's why Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. But Christ now lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the humility and the selflessness of Jesus that got him killed. But it's the humility and selfness of Jesus that led to his crucifixion that makes him the glorious Savior that he is that we need. But if we want to be exalted, if we want our desires to trump God's will, we'll never be able to believe in Jesus. The two are incompatible. Because what we want has a direct impact on what we choose to believe. So my question to you is this. What do you want? What do you want? And for some of you who are Christians, let me ask you a question. How are your wants impacting your beliefs? And, and I'm not asking you to say this to anyone else, but just in, the, in, in your own heart, would you be honest with yourself for just a moment and consider the thing that you want the most? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a position in, a, in your company. Maybe it's for someone to acknowledge you. I don't know what it is, but think about the thing that it is that you want the most. And then let me ask you this question. How is that want changing what you believe? Because unless you are getting your wants from the heart of the Father, your wants will always pull you away. That's why the psalmist prayed, Give me the desires of my heart. He wasn't saying, give me what I want. He was saying, 
I want to want what you want me to want. That's what it means to follow Jesus. To say, I want to want what you want me to want. Can we just say that together? It's it's a lot. I want to want what you want me to want. Here's my challenge. Would you pray that prayer for a week? I know it sounds silly, but you'll remember it. I want to want what you want me to want. And then begin to discover those things and how he changes the desires of your heart. And how by changing the desires of your heart, you begin to see Jesus for who he really is and not just who you want him to be. And for some of you who are here, you're not a Jesus follower. And and maybe you're battling questions about theology and faith, and and I'm good. I'm so glad that you are, and I'm glad that you're here. But, But let me just challenge you to do this. Maybe at the core of it, after you get through all the questions and all the debates and all the arguments, maybe at the core of it, let me ask you, do you want to believe? And if you don't, would you be brave enough to pray this prayer? It's a prayer that A.W. Tozer prayed. Lord, make me want to want you. Make me want to want you. I challenge you to pray that this week. Make me want to want to believe. I believe God will give you the desires of your heart when you pray that way. For some of us, we need to take this reality and go back and evaluate our wants and our desires. And we need to look at what we believe and ask, how have I changed my beliefs in order to justify what it is I want? Because what we want has a direct impact on what we choose to believe. Will you pray with me? Father, I want to want what you want me to want. But Lord, I confess that my wanter is broken. That I can't want what you want. Because my heart is deceptive above all things. And so it longs for things. It desires things. And then those desires have a way of changing the way what I believe and how I choose to relate to you. And Father, I thank you that your grace is always sufficient for me in my brokenness and that you see me in all my shortcomings and love me anyway. And so Lord, for, for us, for your church, we pray, God, confessing, even in the prayer, that by wanting to want what you want us to want, we don't naturally want it. Help us, Lord, help us. Father, for those who are here today who are still struggling with who Jesus is, the claims, and Father, they can, like the Pharisees, hear all the evidence and hear all the testimony. And at the end of all of that, Father, if they don't want to believe, they won't. And so today for them, I just pray that you would make them want to want to believe. 
Lord, your Holy Spirit's the only power strong enough to do that. To, to invade our lives and reorient our desires. But Lord, I don't want to, at the end of my life, hear that I missed it. That I read the Bible but totally missed the truth of it. That I heard the testimony of other believers but misinterpreted their testimonies. Father, I, I want to see clearly Jesus in all his glory. Father, not that I might be exalted but that he might be exalted. And Lord, that he might be exalted not just in my life but in this, his church. Give us your church, your heart, and your desire. For we pray it in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.